Welcome to Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom, the podcast where I speak with people who see the wrong in the world and are driven to make it right. Today, I speak with a death penalty lawyer who pivoted to research in order to effect more change, trading pleading to the court for policy prescription. It was striking the frequency which which race played a role in so many of these cases. In Philadelphia, it was a huge issue in jury selection. And in fact, there was a videotape that was used to train district attorneys essentially to strike almost all African-Americans off the jury panels. And we worked on a study that showed the sort of effect of that in racially disproportionate death sentencing. As the director of the Justice Policy Program and the Rand Institute of Civil Justice, he seeks to form a more perfect legal system. James Anderson, right now on Righteous Convictions. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome back to Righteous Convictions. By now, you probably know this is a show where I have the privilege of interviewing some of today's most prominent and dynamic agents of change, people who are doing good in the world just because they can. And today is going to be a good one. Today, we have a guy with a common name and a very uncommon life who has been doing this work for about as long as I have, but came at it from a very different angle. And I am really excited. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce James Anderson. James, welcome to Righteous Convictions. Well, thank you very much, Jason. And thanks for the very kind introduction. And I'm going to now embarrass James a little bit, just going to talk about a few of his achievements. He's currently the director of the Justice Policy Program and the RAND Institute for Civil Justice, as well as a senior behavioral and social scientist at the RAND Corporation. For those who don't know RAND, it's arguably the most respected organization of its kind in the world. It has been so for a long, long time. But here's what blows me away, because I'm a college dropout, so this sounds even more amazing. But Mr. Anderson... Our guest today received a BA in ethics, politics, and economics, and a JD from Yale University at his law school. Pretty good. He spent a long time as a practicing capital defense lawyer, meaning death penalty, appellate, and habeas type of things, and is now a leading change maker in the social justice field. So how did this all begin? Where did you come from? Yeah, well, so I went to college and, and I was interested in the law and ended up going to law school. And actually there was fortunate enough to hear Brian Stevenson speak. And Brian Stevenson, you know, recently published Just Mercy, a longtime death penalty lawyer working in Alabama and Georgia and a few other places. I didn't know much about the death penalty at all. And, you know, I wasn't a supporter, but really didn't know much about it. 
and he talked some about, you know, some of the problems. And in particular, he said, you know, there was this one case, McCluskey v. Kemp, that the United States Supreme Court had decided that essentially said that, you know, racial discrimination in the administration of the death penalty didn't matter and didn't give rise to a constitutional claim. And I thought that was surely wrong, right? I thought he had, he was just sort of exaggerating for rhetorical effect. And so I went up to him afterwards and said, oh, you know, it was you know really interesting talk. I learned a lot. But, you know, you said that there was this case that said that race didn't matter in the death penalty. And I said, surely that's an exaggeration or, you know, and he said, no, no, you know, look it up. You know, sure enough, of course, that's more or less what the case said and somewhat of a confusing case and a lot of different interpretations, but that's how it's often been interpreted, particularly by the lower courts. So, you know, that was mind blowing to me that pretty persuasive evidence of systemic racial discrimination in the application of Georgia's death penalty was essentially said to not be a problem in the United States. And so I got sort of more involved and worked down in Georgia with Steve Bright one summer at the Southern Center for Human Rights on a couple of death penalty cases. And, you know, one year became two years. And the work was, of course, incredibly gratifying and quite interesting. And I ended up doing it for about 10 years. Okay, so you graduated Yale, you end up in Georgia, but then you end up in Pennsylvania, where you had this illustrious run as, you know, one of the few really great, talented advocates for the people on death row. I don't know how else to say it. It's sort of the Lord's work, right? I mean, it doesn't get more profound. It was very interesting and very gratifying. You know, and it was striking how we would come to these cases after they'd been litigated for some time. And the quality of the trials was just very poor. And the defense counsel were just super underprepared. They didn't have resources. They often told the judge on the record, look, I, I'm, I'm not prepared to go forward. And the judge basically said, oh, you know, too bad. The level of representation in Pennsylvania, partly because it's still the only state that doesn't have any state funded public defense. So it's entirely provided by the counties. And in some cases, they've had sort of go to the lowest bidder, you know, and pretty much throughout the level of defense in these cases was just terrible. But from the position I was taking up the cases, post-conviction, you know, sort of ironically, that was a good thing because there were lots of errors that we could identify and, you know, have some hope, you know, that the injustice would be acknowledged and, and rectified. Right. It is ironic that if you're going to have a bad lawyer, you're best off having a really, really bad lawyer, right? I mean, what you don't want is somebody in the middle. And what wasn't available to any of these people was top-notch, not just legal help, but investigative help. And tell me more, if you would, about how it works in Pennsylvania. But I know there are some states where you get $500 or $1,000 to mount a defense in a death penalty case for investigative work or whatever else. Of course, that amount of money is basically useless in terms of hiring experts or doing anything like that. And the state, of course, has unlimited resources in these cases. Was that the case in Pennsylvania as well? Yes. No, that's exactly right. Some counties would have public defense systems, but the larger counties often did. But you know, they were quite small and quite underfunded and the investigative resources that they typically had were, again, very, very limited. In many counties, they just used a court-appointed system where a particular lawyer would be appointed by the court, and then that lawyer would have to petition the judge to receive any kind of investigative or expert funds, which are you know, absolutely vital. And so when those funds aren't available, those stories just don't get told. Yeah, and we just go ahead and keep sentencing people to death. I don't know. It's become like numbingly 
routine in, in too many places. I mean, there is sort of a, again, sort of coming back to sort of these funny ironies. I mean, the good thing about being sentenced to death, again, if this seems like an odd sentence construction to even begin a sentence that begins that way, uh, but was that at least in Pennsylvania, there would be some scrutiny of both your conviction and sentence. And so there were federal funds available to examine your sentence and your conviction as well. That was not true for the thousands of people who are Pennsylvania prisoners who were convicted of second-degree murder, who have life without parole sentences. And so the resources for post-conviction for those folks are you know, quite limited. And so those cases just essentially are not being examined with the scrutiny that the death penalty cases were. So I've, I've certainly heard you know, some of my clients say, you know, thank God I got the death sentence because otherwise all the problems with my conviction never would have been uncovered. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it is, well, a life sentence is a different kind of death sentence, right? Because if you're going to die in prison, it's still in, in effect, like I said, it's still capital punishment, and yet you get no access to anything except maybe a law library that you can go into and try to figure it out yourself. And then it's sort of goodbye and good luck. It's another undercovered and cruel aspect of our system where we treat people's lives as totally disposable. The other thing that was sort of striking was the frequency which which race played a role in so many of these cases. In Philadelphia, it was a huge issue in jury selection. And in fact, there was a training videotape that was used to train district attorneys, essentially to strike almost all African-Americans off the jury panels. And we worked on a study that showed the sort of effect of that in terms of racially disproportionate death sentencing. But even in uh, relatively rural parts of Pennsylvania, there was one case I remember where the district attorney argued, and the victim was white, the defendant was white, but the district attorney argued in closing argument that the jury should convict the defendant because he had friends who were African-American and he wasn't afraid of African-Americans. And this showed that he somehow was a bad person and therefore guilty of murder. And it was just, again, sort of striking here, you know, there, there was no obvious racial element of the case, and yet race entered the process. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX Anniversary Sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. 
Save 30% on super comfortable, machine washable, and great looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K N I X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K N I X.com. You know, Rand is such an interesting thing. You know, Rand sounds bland, right? Maybe that's by design. <laughs> like, what Rand is? Do they make like uh, paper products? Like, what? Like Rand? <laughs> what is that? Like, so, can you give us just sort of a, a quick overview of what Rand does in general? So, actually, it came out of World War II, and during World War II, there were a bunch of academics enlisted for the war effort. And then, you know, the war ended and initially they were all going to sort of go back to the various universities. And then actually the Ford Foundation originally stepped in and provided some money to say, hey, you know, we can potentially improve national defense policy if we keep this group of folks together. And that's what they did for about the next 15, 20 years. And then in the, the 1960s, Rand realized that, hey, you know, our quantitative approach and rigorous, objective, nonpartisan, really fact-based approach to research can be applied and should be applied to the wide range of domestic issues as well. And so since the 60s, you know, we've done a ton of work, and I think it now it's about 50-50, with 50% being a sort of national defense type work and 50% being health policy, education policy, labor policy, obviously justice policy, you know, public health policy, community health policy, environmental policy, I mean, just really, really incredibly wide range of projects. And RAND really prides itself on making a difference in the world and change policy. And so that part of RAND's mission, you know, really appealed to me. So... You went from death row to well, academia, right, at the University of Pittsburgh teaching, and now to the RAND, um, they call it the RAND Corporation, I never knew why, but the RAND Research Policy Group. You know, and since joining here, I've gotten to work on a you know, really wide range of interesting projects, some sort of coming right out of my work doing death penalty work. One of, one of my projects was actually looking at the effect of lawyers in Philadelphia on the outcome of homicide cases. And it was sort of interesting. I mean, everyone sort of assumes that having a good lawyer makes a difference, but there was actually pretty limited evidence for that claim. And some people actually sometimes doubted it. And so we were able to take advantage of a nice natural experiment in Philadelphia where one out of five cases was being more or less randomly assigned to the public defender's office, which in Philadelphia was a very good office. And four out of five cases were being assigned to court-appointed lawyers who didn't have many resources, intended to take on too many cases, and were paid in such a way that they were incentivized actually to take too many cases to trial. So anyway, so we were able to, using rigorous econometric tools, measure and show the difference that that made in the outcome of cases and showed that the group of defendants who had received the better lawyers, the public defender's office, which in Philadelphia was a very good office, had much better outcomes, lower chances of conviction, much shorter sentences. And so this led to a change in the policy in Philadelphia to sort of end that disparity. You had another very interesting article called Measuring Interjudge Sentencing Disparity 
before and after the federal sentencing guidelines. That's a topic, again, that I think deserves more attention. So ever since certainly the, the early 70s and even before then, a number of commentators had noted that it seemed awfully unfair that the sentence you would receive depended quite a bit on the judge you happened to get. And I've yet to hear any sort of remotely satisfying theory of punishment or theory of judging that you know says that's a good thing. So the federal sentencing guidelines were passed in 1984, actually on a bipartisan basis, where the folks on the right tended to think that federal sentencing was too short. And folks on the left were concerned about racial discrimination and disparate sentences there. And so the idea was to reduce federal judges' discretion in sentences. And in so doing, the sentences were also significantly increased as sort of part of this process. In that particular study, it was interesting and fun because I teamed up with a Yale Law School professor and economist and measured rigorously for the first time, I think, the extent to which the federal sentencing guidelines reduced interjudge disparity. And they did, in fact, substantially reduce interjudge sentencing disparity, but you know, at a considerable cost to just sort of generally increasing sentences across the board, you know, and, and also probably perpetuating a lot of injustices in specific cases where more judicial discretion would be appropriate. Right. They made a bad situation worse by basically taking away the bottom, but but not taking away the top and, and then taking the chance that you would get a good judge and throwing that out the window. And, you know, I've been on the board of Families Against Mandatory Minimums, which is FAMM. I encourage yep. people to go yep. to FAMM.org. I've been on their board for over a quarter century now, and it's a lot of the work that we do. And you're right. It's, it's a horrible thing to take judges' ability to judge away. Yeah. And the other thing that it did that I think wasn't fully thought through was that it, it significantly increased the power of the prosecutors, right? So if you reduce the power of the judges, then the prosecutor has a lot more power in the system. And certainly there was, there was sort of a, a striking increase in sentence length as a result of the federal sentencing guidelines and mandatory minimums. And, you know, I mean, there were a number of different things going on in that era of federal criminal justice and for that matter in, in the states as well. Right. All it did really was take the power that the judge had and give it to the prosecutor. And granted, over 80 percent of judges are former prosecutors, but We'd like to hope that once they put those robes on, they become more impartial, more totally impartial. But now that the prosecutors have all that power, it creates the trial penalty and all sorts of other awful consequences. It was a disastrous mistake that has devastated not just individuals, families, communities, and it needs to be done away with. We need to give judges back the power to judge, and then we need to elect better judges. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I saw that one of the priority projects that ran right now is a project on racial equity, something that's near and dear to my heart. I mean, the idea is that it is important to understand the racial and equitable implications of our research. 
So for example, not sort of glibly, either just sort of not really discuss these issues at all, or just sort of glibly report cross tabs or you know the statistical findings without really sort of trying to explore the equitable implications of our findings. So RAND has started a Center for Racial Equity Policy to sort of improve the level of analysis, both externally and internally, to make sure that RAND research is addressing these topics. Again, both in terms of projects that are explicitly about race, right? So in, in many cases, we're explicitly addressing and documenting, you know, racial disparities and, and trying to really understand, well, okay, how did, these, how did these come about? Where are these from? What can we do about them? But also projects that aren't sort of on their face necessarily primarily about race. I mean, the fundamental research questions in the project may have nothing to do with race, but there may be important racial and equitable implications of the research that it's important to look at and understand. At any given time, there may be 50 or 60 projects ranging from gun policy to police community relations, trying to improve those in a bunch of different ways, trying to identify policies to improve policing you know, we've got a project that's trying to use virtual reality to provide de-escalation training to smaller police forces, developing better drug policy to correctional education. We did some terrific work that showed how much money providing education to prisoners ultimately saves states and the federal government. You know, it's something like a 10 to 1 ratio for every dollar spent on correctional education. The whole system and the country saves $10 on reduced you know, recidivism costs. But, you know, it, it certainly is very gratifying for me to be able to work with such great colleagues doing such great work on so many important topics. I mean, just project after project and, you know, researcher after researcher, it's, it's just really wonderful to work with such a, a very accomplished and dedicated group of people. Uh, you love your work and it comes through. Uh, I can hear it in your voice and it's it's nice to hear that. I feel the same way about the work that I do. It just I wish we didn't have to do it, but uh, that's unfortunately not going to be a reality in the foreseeable future. We're just going to have to keep fighting together and that's exactly what we will do. So with that being said, I have a question that is my favorite question that I ask each of our guests, which is, if you had a magic wand and could fix one thing, what would it be? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, partly, you know, right, I'm going to have to ask, you know, it's kind of a scope question, but let's, we'll, we'll just kind of set that aside. Um, sure. I mean, making the world a more equitable place, you know, would be pretty extraordinary, you know, and, and solve a whole bunch of other problems as well. Now, again, how exactly you do that, I think I'll just hunt on that one because it's such a complicated problem. But in the shorter term, you know, trying to identify and document, you know, some existing problems in the justice policy area and try to identify ways that we can fix them because there are lots of policies that one can undertake is a good first step towards that ultimate goal of trying to make the world a more equitable place. And now, before we go to our closing, I want to invite our audience to tune in next week when we speak with Ebony Underwood. And believe me, this woman is a force of nature. You've got to hear this interview. Ebony took the experience of having her father locked up parental incarceration to begin her life's work with We Got Us Now, an organization that elevates the voices of those like her to the forefront of the conversations about prison and legal system reform. And now the closing of our show is called Words of Wisdom, where first of all, of course, I thank you for joining us. Thank you to the audience as well. This wouldn't be worth doing without you. And then going to turn my microphone off, leave my headphones on, kick back in my chair and just listen for anything else you feel is left to be said. 
Okay. Um, Rand's mission is to make the world a better place through objective, nonpartisan research. And in a world where there's sort of increasing political polarization, at times that seems like a hopeless task. But I, I really don't think it is. And I, I really have faith. And partly this comes from my time working in the courts, where even in highly politicized death penalty cases, you know, if you brought solid evidence to the right court, you could get relief. And similarly, I at least like to think that if you bring solid evidence to the American people, they will, not all the time, but at least some of the time, do the right thing and adopt the right policy to make the world a better place. And so I am ultimately optimistic about the ability of careful policymaking and careful research to improve the United States and the world. Now this is, you know, this is a long, slow, painful process with many steps backwards as well as steps forward. But I think it is the most reliable way to make the, the world a better place. And it's sort of piece by piece, brick by brick, you know, policy by policy. And, you know, sometimes policies that we think are going to be wonderful turn out to have some unforeseen side effects. But that's, that's part of the process. Thank you for listening to Righteous Convictions with Jason Plum. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Lava for Good. You can also follow me on TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Plum. Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.